1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Education. My name is Jonathan Haber. While people often introduce their guests as someone who needs no introduction, I think that phrase is well suited for the person I'll be talking with today, Professor Howard Gardner. Professor Gardner is the Hobbes Research Professor of Cognition and Education at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, a longtime director of Harvard's Project Zero, And the developer of one of the most well-known ideas to come out of the intersection of psychology and education in the last 50 years, multiple intelligence theory. Dr. Gardner is also the author of over 30 books, including his most recent one we'll be talking about today, The Synthesizing Mind from MIT Press. Howard Gardner, welcome to New Books in Education.
3: Thank you, John. Good to speak with you.
2: Well, your new book is a memoir full of biographical detail, You've really written a biography of your own mind or more specifically, a study of how you came to have and realize you have a synthesizing mind. Can you explain why you chose to use, really create this new genre of memoir?
3: Sure. I've been studying human mind ever since I became interested in psychology many years ago. But I've almost always focused on other people's minds. And that's what psychologists often do. We do experiments, we do observations, and we try to describe how people think. And that's been an activity that I've enjoyed doing. But I've reached a point in life where if I don't reflect on myself now, I never will. And what I did in the memoir was to elaborate on an idea that I had some time ago. And that was that while most people are trained in experimental psychology the way I have been, most of us will do experiments and we write them up and then we go and do another experiment, which either extends or peaks the previous one, I'm basically a book writer. And rather than writing books about the same aspect of mind, I've written about creativity, I've written about leadership, I've written about the arts uh, and so on. And so I began to say, well, what's the funny kind of person who does this sort of thing? And I then elaborated on what I had often realized, is that I love to pose big issues for myself, things which I don't understand very well, and importantly, where I can't just look it up. 30 years ago, I began to hear the word cognitive science. So I asked a lot of people what's cognitive science and nobody gave me a good answer. And I said, well, maybe I, I need to study it myself. But when I wrote about create intelligence, people said, well, are people who are creative, do they have different kinds of intelligences? I, said, I don't know, so I'm gonna study that. And so I get a problem that intrigues me and then I collect stuff. It can be observations, interviews, it can be things that have been written or into other kinds of media. And then I organize and reorganize and create taxonomies and models and mind maps, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of that I do myself, but I don't, it's not solipsistic. I pass on to other people and have them critique it. And then at a certain point, though not always, at a certain point I say, this is ready to go public and I produce a a synthesis. And it's not always the case because there are books I never finished because I could never get my head around the problem. And then there are two other motives for writing the book. One is that I was impressed by what Murray Gell-Mann, a Nobel Prize-winning physicist, said many years ago. He said, in the 21st century, the most important mind will be the synthesizing mind. And I said, gee, that's interesting. And maybe uh, we should pay attention to what Murray Gell-Mann said. The other thing is that even though I think many people synthesize, journalists certainly are synthesizers and people who run large organizations have to be synthesizers, if you look in psychology literature there's very little that really helps you understand what's involved in synthesis. And I think I know why. We psychologists like to do experiments, as I said, and we can do those pretty efficiently and write them up and get publications. Synthesizing can take years. Charles Darwin was probably the greatest synthesizer in biology. He spent 30 years collecting stuff and organizing and reorganizes and so on. That's hard to simulate in a short test, either a paper and pencil or a computer-aided test or some kind of a experimental task so that's maybe more than you want to know but those are all the things that were in my mind when i decided to write an intellectual memoir about synthesizing
2: and before we get into sort of how you determine you had one you've described you started this journey but uh how would you describe a synthesizing mind a synthesizing
3: mind is one that poses big questions and then decides, well, have they already been answered? Because if they have been to your satisfaction, you just toss it away. But if not, you see what's already been done, what's already been written, what's already been collated, what's already available on the web. And then you say, well, what new stuff do I need? And as this empirical scholar, I often will do surveys or do interviews or done experiments. And then the art of synthesizing, or we might even say the soft science of synthesizing is to organize and reorganize and try putting stuff together in all different kinds of ways until it finally clicks for you. If I say, gee, that's the answer I was looking for, but you don't want it to be just your own answer. So any reasonable synthesizer tests it with various other people. I have colleagues, I have family, and sometimes people say, go back to drawing boards. But then uh, eventually I hope an editor will say, well, this is worth bringing out to the public. And then that synthesis is over, at least for a while.
2: You trace this sort of thinking back to your childhood. What were some of the clues from early on that your mind worked this way? Well, of course, when you're young,
3: you either don't think about your mind at all, or you assume everybody else has a mind like yours. And sometimes people go through life like that. That's not a good idea. That's why I think multiple intelligences idea caught on, because it opens up to the fact that people have different kinds of minds. But first of all, as a child, I was curious. That's not that unusual. I also loved to read, and I read encyclopedias. And that, I think, is fairly unusual, though probably nowadays people who surf the web, but not just going into the Twitter accounts of your friends or your enemies, but reading very widely and thinking about how things relate to one another. Also, as a very young child, I started a newspaper in school, and I did that throughout primary and middle school and high school. as a newspaper editor there. And there, of course, you have to cover different kinds of things. And if you're a good editorial list, you have to be able to tie it together. And then I go into quite a lot of detail about this. I I went to Harvard College a long time ago, and I was going to be a history major, but then I learned about a field with a terrible name, social relations or SACREL, but it was a combination of psychology, sociology, and anthropology. And I was very interested in those fields, so I didn't know much about them because I'm interested in human beings and their minds and their social processes, and so on. And I loved soccer, and I was good at it. And then when I went to graduate school, uh, after a period, I studied developmental psychology, kind of as an experimentalist. And I really didn't like graduate school, so much so as I, I tell in the book that I actually made a list of all the reasons to quit and all the reasons to stay. It was like flipping a coin. But I think that I resisted being domesticated, professionalized to just do experiments with children about cognition, which is what I was being trained to do. I wanted to be able to wander more widely. And that's why, unlike almost all my primarily trained psychology colleagues, I'm more of a book writer than an article writer. And to keep sane, that may sound stupid, to keep saying, in graduate school, I actually worked on three books. Again, they would have probably put me in the insane asylum if, if the professors learned that I was writing three books, but I, I was.
2: And uh, kind of sticking with your childhood, there was an incident in your book about how your parents took you for an evaluation using the sort of popular psychological tests of the day. Can you but also tell us how it impacted your attitude towards testing, given the trajectory of your career?
3: Sure. Well, let me mention that until November 21st, I shared two things with Joe Biden, our president elect. Number one, I was born in Scranton, Pennsylvania, as he was. And two, we were the same age. He's now gotten a bit ahead of me, but uh, I'll catch up in some months. And my parents were not educated. They were very good parents, and they respected education, but they had proverbial bright kid on their hands. And people suggest you should just send him away to private school. Uh, I did, ended up not going where they wanted me to go, which was Phillips Academy in Andover, a very select secondary school. But they were convinced that I should be tested. That was the phrase. And so we went for a week to Hoboken, New Jersey, several hour car ride from Scranton because there weren't super highways then. And for a week, I was tested with a whole battery of tests. I think it cost $300, which doesn't sound like much now, but was like $3,000 now. And I must've had 20 different tests. And the end of it, they called me and my parents in the room and I don't remember the person, but it was presumably a, a man in a white coat. And he said, well, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Gardner, you've got a talented kid. Howard can probably do most anything, but he has special gifts in the clerical area, which didn't mean that I could become a priest, but that uh, I was good at going through lists and crotting, cussing off all the letters of a certain short or not crossing up other ones. And even though I didn't know much about psychology at the time, I said to myself, what a waste of time to take all these tests and be told I could be a clerk, something I don't want to do and something doesn't require any kind of expansive mind. So uh, I was a good test taker. I was happy about that. But then uh, when I began to study psychology and be- particularly in the book goes into a lot of detail about this. I was doing child psychology, developmental psychology with children, but I was also studying brain damaged patients, people who had one or another kind of brain pathology. And then I was part of a large grant, which allowed me to travel all around the world. And the more I did this, the more I became convinced the notion that intelligence was one thing and you could measure it with one instrument called an IQ test was just unsubstantiated. And I believe that more than ever. And so, uh, I developed a theory called multiple intelligences, which, of course, angered people in psychology, particularly people in psychometrics and measurement, because probably the most famous invention in the 20th century in psychology was the IQ test. And I will admit, if you have an hour and you want to know how somebody will do in school next year, uh, you can give an IQ test. You have a pretty good idea. I'll give you a clue. You'll have an even better idea if you know their class standing or their grades.
1: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
2: As you just mentioned, you're most well-known for that work you did in the 1980s on multiple intelligences. Can you explain that theory for those who might not be familiar with it and use it to analyze what you now describe as your synthesizing mind?
3: Well, because I was trained in development of psychology, but also in brain studies, because I worked for 20 years with brain damage patients in the Veterans Hospital Every day I would see children in the afternoon or brain damaged patients in the morning who had what I call jagged intellectual profiles. If you have brain damage, the single most important thing is where is the damage? Left hemisphere, right hemisphere, anterior, posterior, superficial or deep. And similarly, if you work with kids, particularly in the arts, because I was very focused in the arts, if somebody's good in music or good in drawing, you simply can't predict are they going to be good in learning foreign languages or good in finding the way around an unfamiliar space or in understanding other people. So I developed this intuition that we had different kinds of minds. That was the tag phrase I had in the 1970s. And then, as I mentioned, uh, we got a very large grant, over a million dollars. And my job was to figure out what was known about human cognitive potential. And working with a very good staff over about five years, I did the kind of synthesizing I was talking about, looking at data from psychology, anthropology, genetics, cross-cultural work, and organizing and reorganizing all the information I could get about different human faculties. And at the end of the day, I decided there are about seven distinct human faculties, human capacities. And then I don't remember how, and nobody else remembers it either, I made the fatal decision to call these separate intelligences. If I'd written a book called Seven Talents, or maybe even Seven Computation Capacities, it would have been just another addition to the library. But I decided to call this multiple intelligences. And not only did this excite general readers, it annoyed the hell out of psychologists who said intelligence is one thing, we know how to measure it, who does this guy looking at anthropology and genetics and so on give me a break. So I became well-known in education and in popular cognitive and social science. And I could have spent the rest of my life either marketing or packaging or commodifying multiple intelligences. Um, and some other people have done that, but I actually, having the synthesizing kind in mind, I didn't keep doing that. I went on and did other things. And I and I think, Jonathan, that one of the reasons I wanted to write this book is because I wanted to say to people, I'm more than the MI guy. I'm more than the multiple intelligences guy. And moreover, and this is the question you were asking, I don't think my theory, multiple intelligences, is a particularly cogent, coherent, and comprehensive explanation of what I do. I think synthesizing requires a different kind of intellectual model. And one of the things I'm doing now is trying to understand better who are synthesizers, where do they come from, how do they use their mind, and in my terms, since I believe we have these seven or eight or nine different computers, how do people use these computers conjunctively to do synthesis?
2: Expanding on the work you've done since MI, You've done a lot of work. Most recently, you've been focused on ethics through something called the Good Work Project. Can you describe that work?
3: Yes. And I would never have arrived at that project if two things hadn't happened. One was I had some close colleagues who shared interests of mine. And we spent a year together. But two of the three of us had seen our own ideas very badly abused. And in my case, it was the idea of multiple intelligences. In the early 90s, I learned that in Australia, in one of the states there, there was a educational program that was being used throughout that state, which classified each racial and demographic group in terms of which intelligences it had and which ones it lacked. And I said, this is preposterous. We don't even have good tests of the intelligences how can you possibly say if a person belongs to this group or has this color of skin, for that matter, is a woman rather than a man or is from from Asia rather than from Europe or Latin America, they have one set of intelligence and not another. So I began to ponder that a great deal, as did these colleagues, Bill Damon and Mike Mahai. And together in the middle 90s, we developed a project called the Good Work Project. And the question the project asked, how can you do things that are of high quality but also things which are done ethically and morally. And if that question was timely in 1995, it's certainly highly timely in 2020, when so many of our professions are under attack, especially science and expertise, and so many of our institutions are feeble and frail compared to the way they were 20 or 30 years ago. It's really important not only that we do work well, but that we do work in an ethical and moral way, And I'm very fortunate. I have wonderful colleagues who work with me at Project Zero at Harvard. And we're studying all sorts of aspects of good work, good play, good citizenship, and trying to understand not just how you do things at an expert level, not only are you engaged with it, that's important, but do you carry it out in an ethical, moral way? And of course, you can't look up what the ethical and moral ways are. That's often a matter of discussion. So we're very interested And how do people discuss and debate and decide what to do when they're confronted with a difficult situation? And then do we learn from? We talk about five D's with dilemmas, discussing, debating, deciding, and then debriefing. And probably as long as I continue to do work, I'm going to try to understand the moral and ethical challenges that people face and how can we deal with them. And of course, I do it in a society which thinks about itself as being democratic though that's been challenged. That's small d, Democrat. But we live in a world where not every society is democratic or even aspires to be democratic. And so the question of how do we deal with difficult issues without either burning the planet or blowing it up, these are issues I'm not going to solve, but whatever energies I have and whatever energies my research group has, that's what we're working on.
2: Well, it sounds like synthesizing minds are going to be necessary now more than ever. But uh, at the end of your book, you actually group the synthesizing mind with four other types of minds. Can you talk about what those are and how you came up with them and maybe how this framework just generally fits with your previous work?
3: (laughs) That's a big assignment. I'll talk about the five minds. But I also want to talk a bit about computing and synthesizing, because I think that's very important as well. In a book I, I wrote called Five Minds for the Future, I talk about three kinds of cognitive minds. These are having to do with thinking and problem solving. One of those is disciplined. A second is synthesizing. A third is creative. And they're kind of continuum. A discipline is called, you know, basically knowing what you're doing. Synthesizing is putting stuff together. And creating is trying to do something that's new and even mind-changing. And A good way to think about that is textbooks. Textbooks are always syntheses, but some textbooks occasionally open up the field in a new way. When Paul Samuelson wrote a textbook in economics, that changed how economics was taught for a generation. William James, the great psychologist, wrote a book in 1890 called Psychology, and for the next decades, that's how. So some syntheses are creative, but you can't make them creative. Some of them just are. I also talk about two other kinds of minds, which are the minds that the Good Work Project is interested in, what I call the respectful mind and the ethical mind. And of course, those involve cognition, but they really have to do with our relationship with other people. Respect is with our neighbors, our friends, our family, people whom we see every day. Ethical is how do we fill the roles of workers and professionals and citizens? How do we deal with people whom we don't know personally, don't have a family relationship with or a neighborly relationship, but we still have to try to do the right thing? And that's what I think is particularly challenged these days. What I didn't write about then, but I've begun to write about it now, is the role of computing and artificial intelligence and what's called deep learning in these minds. I'm thinking about it naturally in relationship to synthesizing particularly, because any synthesizer now would be foolish not to make use of the best computational capacities and programs available. If some entity that somebody devised or some deep learning algorithm can take a look at all my data and organize it. I'm very grateful. In the COVID era, that's very valuable. But I don't think AI synthesis can be a replacement for human synthesizing, because I think of the decision about which questions to look at, which programs and algorithms to use. And then importantly, when you get some kind of an organization of the data, you necessarily follow that do you say, wait, this may be excellent, but it's not ethical. These are things that I think are human decisions, and at least for the foreseeable future, they'll be made by human beings, or at least they should be. Maybe 500 years from now, they'll be done entirely by entities which are smarter and more ethical than we are. Well, that would be the post-humanoid or post-anthropomorphic era. That would be the era of just smart machines and ethical machines.
2: Okay, well, we have that to look forward to, I guess.
3: (laughs) Well, maybe you do. (laughs) I don't don't expect to be around.
2: (laughs) I'm just curious, uh, a lot of people I've interviewed on this podcast and elsewhere work in the field of philosophy. Uh, Now, before philosophy itself became as academic as it is now, I always considered it a field where synthesis of different ideas took place. And I hope these aren't fighting words, but given given the scope and nature of your work over the years in the mind and aesthetics and ethics, um, might you be a philosopher? Well,
3: probably philosophers would say I'm a philosopher, Moncay. That is, uh, in spite of my desires, I don't qualify but it's a good question because when I was in college, philosophy was already very academic and very oriented toward logic. And that was not something I was good at or interested in. But as a graduate student, there was nobody who was more influential on me than a philosopher named Nelson Goodman. And Nelson was a great philosopher, was much nicer to me than to his philosophy graduate students because I wasn't trying to invade his terrain where he'd have to tell me everything I had right. And I think a lot of my systematic thinking, if I have that kind of thinking, comes from working with Nelson Goodman. In the book, I point out that Goodman once said to me, when I read something, as soon as I get to a sentence that doesn't make sense, I stop reading. And that's a pretty terrible thing to say to a student, but it really, it's, it's influenced me ever since. One of the things that one discovers about oneself is when you get a magazine or when you go to a bookstore, where do you look first? And often I'll read philosophy reviews first. And so I think that's an indicator that even though I don't know that I could have been a good philosopher, it's something I'm very interested in. The book that I feel is most me these days, other than my autobiography, my memoir, is a book called Truth, Beauty, and Goodness Reframed, which is really a philosophical book. It wasn't much noticed, but when it got a fable review from Alan Ryan, who's a philosopher, I felt very good about that. But maybe part of being a synthesizer, Jonathan, is that no single label Quite fits. I don't belong to the Psychological Association anymore because I don't feel a kinship with the people I was trained with, and I don't belong to the philosophy group either. I'm kind of a wanderer, and of course, you know that's how philosophy began. I mean, Socrates was a wanderer, right? Um, he poisoned the the minds of uh, people by asking questions they didn't want to they didn't want to have to confront. And his his student Plato wrote it down and systematized it, and then. Aristotle was the great synthesizer. For 2,000 years, that's what people read. But as you say, while there is some philosophy that's quite broad, and I'm more interested in that, most technical philosophy now is, is is really comes out of logical positivism and it's analytic, and it, it shies away from the big question. Nelson Goodman used to say, there are hedgehogs and foxes. This is a statement that actually comes from Archilochus, who was a Greek, but was made famous by Isaiah Berlin. And uh, the foxes interested... In lots of little things, the hedgehog is interested in one big thing. And Nelson used to joke, he said, I'm interested in one little thing. <laughs> now, that wasn't true. He, in fact, was, was quite broad. But I think he tested himself in a very strict way. And you can't be a synthesizer, whether you are Yuval Harari or Jared Diamond, if you're going to, or Steven Pinker, or Jill Lapore or Mary Beard, if you're going to try to satisfy everybody who has a completely technical knowledge. You take the risk. And that's philosophy, old style, but it's certainly not philosophy today.
2: Thinking with that notion of synthetic fields or potentially synthetic fields, uh, listeners who tune to this podcast are also interested in critical thinking, which itself is a synthesis of philosophy and psychology, cognitive science and other fields. What are your thoughts on the connection between 21st century skills like critical thinking, but also collaboration and creativity and the ability to think synthetically? Well,
3: I certainly don't oppose any of them, but so much depends on the, you know, when you, when you look at the fine print. I mean, there's a well-known educational theory by Benjamin Bloom, who was a very good thinker, comes from the same part of the country that I do, Pennsylvania, and he said synthesizing was the highest human skill. His students ended up throwing that away and coming up with something else, but he was not talking about what I'm talking about. He was talking about, if you give people three articles to write about the French Revolution, you say, put them together. And that was for him, synthesis. And when you're talking about K-12 education, that's okay. I'm talking about a much more ambitious thing where, in a sense, you can't go to Wikipedia and look it up. And as for 21st century skills, what I would say, not only following Murray Gelman, it's the most important skill, but psychology has really dropped the ball in how to teach synthesizing for the reason I alluded to before, it's not something you can simulate in the laboratory very quickly. So in the last chapters of a synthesizing mind, I actually put forth some of my own ideas about the schemes and the mechanisms and the intelligences that I think I use in making sense of the world. And I suggest that other people may do it differently, but they have to use their particular blend of intelligences and what I would call the schemas available to them, whether there are taxonomies or charts or equations or metaphors or uh, metonyms we have different cognitive tools and you have to use the tools that help you make the synthesis and i think a big mistake for me if i were a teacher let's say of 12th grade kids to say this is how i synthesize you should do it the same way i think what i would say is what you're interested in how does your mind work how do you like to organize things I discovered in the course of my synthesizing, psychoanalytic exercising myself, I actually use my naturalist intelligence. I would never have thought of that if I hadn't done that psychoanalysis of how it is that I do synthesizing. So I think it has to be an interaction, a choreography between the teacher and the particular interest and inclination of students. But sure, if you want to add it to the list of 21st century skills, fine. You probably know, having read my stuff, I'm not that fond of these uh, classrooms. Here are the four 21st century skills. Let's get on with it. I think you have to go deeper.
2: Given the schema you've laid out and obviously your your decades of work in education, have any sense of what changes we can make in education and maybe even parenting or society at large that would help cultivate synthetic thinking among young learners?
3: Boy, that's a big, big item.
2: People spend so much time
3: on social media and on the web, but it's so wasted. Not all of it, of course, and not for everybody, but uh, I think that since that's how people learn and spend their time now, if I were teaching young people, I would try to mobilize those inclinations to help them raise questions that they care about and and try to answer them. I do think that a liberal arts education is the best education. It's under terrible pressure now in this country. In fact, we've just done a study of colleges, and we don't even use the word liberal arts anymore because people don't know what it is. This is going to have to subject for another conversation, Jonathan, but I think in this country, we're going entirely in the wrong way in education. And I think the Department of Education, Democratic and Republican, has been part of the problem rather than part of the solution. And I think it's those countries around the world which understand the power of liberal arts education, the kind of education you get at a... Swarthmore or Pomona or an Amherst, uh, and are using it for students who are interested in it, whether they're in Korea or Japan or Finland, I think that's where the good education is going to be. We're going to have to really reorient ourselves a lot to get away from the test mania in this society and the feeling that everything is about getting a job and return investment. I think that's suicidal, but that's how I see the country going. And I would be less than honest with you if I... if I thought there were lots of hopeful signs. Nonetheless, even though by personality and temperament, I'm a pessimist, I live my life as an optimist. And anybody who spends his wife working about, worrying about morals and ethics certainly has to be optimistic because uh, otherwise they would just throw up their hands. But liberal arts education intertwined with ethical. That's what I would like to see for my children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren.
2: Here, here, And just to kind of wrap up, it looks like you don't have any plans to stop after a mere 30-odd books. Uh, what else are you working on and what can we expect to read next? Thanks for asking.
3: One thing I would never have thought until five years ago was that I would become a blogger. And I blogged four or five hundred times. These are essays from five hundred words to five thousand. And um, they're available on my website. So, so I do a lot of writing about things that just interest me. With Wendy Fishman, we're going to publish a book soon about higher education in America with the title, The Once and Future College. I already hinted at that in my discussion of uh, liberal arts, The Once and Future College. And I'm continuing to do research, not only on good work and on the good project, but we're working with the country of Singapore, which is interested in some of our ideas. We have a big study of the United World Colleges, which are very interesting secondary schools around the world. So as long as the neurons are firing at a reasonable pace I continue to research and think and write. I can't control what happens to them but I hope Joe, I hope Joe Biden's neur- neurons last for the next several years and I hope mine do as well.
2: Okay we'll look forward to uh, all that's coming next. I want to thank you for joining us on uh, New Books Network.
3: Good to talk with you and uh, maybe we'll meet again on some other topic.
2: <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. That was Howard Gardner the new book is the Synthesizing Mind from MIT Press.